Amen. Let's stand together. I'm going to read a, some passages out of Luke 16. And while they're getting that ready, I want to just let you know that Kathy and I tomorrow leave for vacation. I'm already about halfway. No, I'm here, but I'm thinking. And we'll be back on the 25th. That's a ways. But I also want to take some time to seek God about what he's saying to us for the rest of this year. You know, I don't just get up and kind of open the Bible and eeny, meeny, miny, moe and preach something that I just come by uh, happenstance. But no, I, I say, Lord, what are you saying to the church? And we've been on a real push. As a matter of fact, do you know that this summer we've grown by almost 200 people? We haven't gone back. We haven't had a slump. We've grown. So we know that fall cometh because that's with a lot of people gone. A lot of our folks gone on the road, vacationing. So fall is coming and we want to be ready. We want to have a fresh word. And we want to be rested. So pray for us. Now you're going, well, who's going to be here? You're going to have to come find out. But I guarantee you will enjoy what they have to say. I never leave you without good speakers and who bring good words. And I tell them, you know, our folks are so good to come and amen you and support you and pat you on the back, and tell you it was a great word. Even if they didn't think it was, they'll lie to you. <laughs> They're that good. So that's, we start tomorrow and just pray for us. Now we've been on a series called Mythbusters. I'm going to end that series today on something you don't hear much about anymore, but oh, does it matter. The myth of there is no hell. There is no hell. It's a myth. And we're going to look at that today. Now let's read a story out of Jesus. This is Jesus teaching. He's telling a story. Let's read it. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus was full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. What a pitiful sight, this poor man. And so it was that the beggar died. Now look what happened. And he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man, he died as well and was buried. And being in what, everyone? Torments. This is what Jesus said. In where? In hell. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off. And Lazarus was sitting in Abraham's bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, this is the rich man talking to Abraham, 
that you would send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But the rich man said, no father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, like Lazarus, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Powerful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God, and we pray that you will bring it home to every person in this sanctuary today. Teach us, Lord, the earnest seriousness of the place called eternity. Thank you for touching hearts, for drawing people far from you nearer. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, grab hold of the side of your seat, you're going to need it. <laughs> if you had followed Jesus around, you would have heard Jesus teaching on things like love and peace and forgiveness, the things we always associate with Jesus. You would have heard him teach about heaven, about forgiveness, about getting along with one another, about blessing children, about feeding the hungry and visiting the sick in prison and in the hospitals. You would have heard him talking about all kinds of things like that. But if you had followed him very long, you would have heard Jesus talk about hell. We don't like to think about that. As a matter of fact, of all the topics I've dealt with in the last six weeks in this series on Mythbusters, and by the way, what's a myth? It is something widely believed that is not true. Many, many people believe it, but that doesn't make it true. It's a myth. I personally believe evolution is a myth that God created us and not happenstance. We used to believe the earth was flat. And everybody believed it, but it was a myth. And right now there's something happening in the church where many people are kind of coming to the conclusion based on their own emotions that there can't be a hell. It's too distasteful. Nobody likes to think about an awful place like hell, especially an eternal hell. We can't wrap our minds around it an eternity of suffering, an eternity cut off from God. It just seems too impossible to believe, too horrible for our modern, rather pampered American minds. Everything within us wants to scream out, it can't be true. That just can't be true. Jesus didn't really mean that. Unfortunately, those of us who want to reject the message of hell, we've got a lot of people that are willing to help us believe that way in our day. Some very popular Bible teachers are now embracing the idea that nobody will go to such a place, and if they do, they will eventually be let out like it was a prison sentence or a jail sentence. This teaching is called universalism. I've watched good people fall to that doctrine. Universalism, uh, universalism claims that Jesus died for the entire world and therefore all the world will automatically be saved because his blood covered everybody. So Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, every serial killer, every terrible person who ever lived 
will be forgiven because Jesus spilled his blood for all of us. And so it washes all of us clean. But what they forget is the six-letter word called repent. Jesus began his ministry with the word repent. John the Baptist began his ministry with the word repent. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. But the universalist forgets that. Now you might be thinking, Pastor Jeff, when you talk about hell, that just makes God seem mean to me. That God would send somebody to hell. That God would actually consign somebody to eternal suffering. I just can't, Pastor Jeff, that just makes God sound cruel to me. There was a time in the Old Testament when the children of Israel were walking through the wilderness. And they began to complain and grumble. Ah, we hate this manna. We hate this uh, life that we've got in this wilderness. What in the world did God bring us out here for but to let us die? We wish we were back in Egypt. And it made God so angry that God released serpents that began to bite them. The, the, the wilderness ground became covered with vipers, with snakes, literally. And they began to bite them. And they began to die by the bites. And, and the people ran to Moses and said, we're being bitten by these snakes. What shall we do? Moses said, what am I going to tell him, Lord? And God said, I want you to erect a pole, and I want you to put on the top of that pole a brass serpent. And I want you to hold that pole up and tell them that everybody who looks at that pole will be healed of the bite, and their lives will be saved. And if they don't look at that pole and at that brass serpent, they will be destroyed by the biting snakes. And so they all began to look at that pole. They didn't look at Moses. They didn't look at the mountains. They didn't look at trees. They looked at that pole. And as they looked at that pole, they began to be healed of the snake bite. Now, Jesus came along in John chapter 3, verse 14, and he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, that everyone who believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now watch this. We've all as human beings been bitten by sin. We have been bitten by the serpent of sin. The Bible says there is none among us who are righteous, no, not one. The Bible says we have all turned aside. We have all together become filthy. We have all turned to our own ways. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the iniquity of us all. The Bible says we were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. That doesn't mean that we're all these terrible, the, these terrible, frothing, evil people. But it means we have an inclination towards sin. And we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the serpent that has bitten us is sin. And sin's consequences are death. The soul that sinneth it shall die, the Bible says. God must punish sin in his moral universe. Now look back at Jesus. When he was lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, he was lifted up on a cross his hands nailed, his feet nailed, his side pierced with a sword. God didn't give many different options. God said as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and that was the only thing you could look at to be healed from the snake bite, so it is that now that Jesus has been lifted up in history, when you look at that cross and you look at Jesus, he is the only one, the only answer, the only way that can heal the sin problem. 
because on him the wrath of God fell and we were judged, every one of us, apart from him. Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, you're already condemned. If you do believe in me, you have passed from condemnation into life. We were condemned and we were dying in our sins until we looked at Jesus and turned to him in faith. And when we did, we were translated from death to life, from lost to found, from hell bound to heaven bound, because we looked at him. He's the only one that God has provided. He didn't provide for us Muhammad. He didn't provide for us Buddha. He didn't provide for us Confucius, not to take away our sin. It was only Christ, only Jesus who was sent to do that. And apart from that, there's no answer. So keeping that in mind, is there really a hell? Well, the Bible teaches that there is. One popular Christian author's book dealing with hell and eternal punishment hit the bestseller list with statements like this. Eternal punishment should be translated as a period of pruning or a time of trimming. I can't even tell you what that means. Here's what he was saying. After you suffer for a little while and learn your lesson, you'll be let out of hell. That's what he was teaching. And that book sold hundreds of thousands of copies. This author was called by USA Today a rock star pastor. Time magazine claimed that the author was, quote, at the forefront of a rethinking of Christianity in America. We don't need a rethinking of Christianity in America. We need a retelling of the real Christianity in America. But watch this. The reality is that, and I read some of the pages where he comes to this conclusion. I read some of his book. And he comes to these conclusions with some of the most wretchedly poor Greek translating I've ever seen. He wouldn't make a passing grade in Greek 101. But the problem is the reading public doesn't know this. So hundreds of thousands of people read, well, even if you go to hell, you get out. Even if there is a hell, I won't stay. So as with all the other myths that we've covered, the Bible is going to be our source on the subject of hell. Not a rock star pastor, but the rock. His name is Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say about hell? I know this is distasteful, but Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I have told you. Well, a cursory reading of scripture reveals that it's impossible to escape the reality of hell or final judgment. It's a topic taken up by every single New Testament writer and it dominates the teachings of Jesus. Did you know that? Jesus said more about hell than any other Bible character. Of the 12 times the Greek word for hell, which is Gehenna, of the 12 times it's used in the New Testament, 11 of those 12, it came from the lips of Jesus. Jesus talked about hell over and over and over again. He warned about it. He taught about it. He described it. He sought to pull people from it. A few examples would be, Jesus said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into, into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire. 
that never shall be quenched, where their worm dies not, and the fire is not put out. Mark 9. Jesus said, Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, this is talking about the final judgment, Jesus will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus said that. Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Clearly, he's not speaking metaphorically. He's not speaking illustratively. He is speaking forthrightly, plainly, bluntly about a place. In Scripture, I found hell is described in several ways. Matthew 13, 42, it's called a furnace of fire. Matthew 25, 46, it's called everlasting punishment. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, it's called everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. 2 Peter 2, 17, it's called the blackness of darkness forever. In Revelations 20, verse 10, it's called the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, I think one factor contributing to the difficulty of pondering hell, even thinking about it, is that we all probably know somebody who is especially resistant to the gospel, a parent, a child, a neighbor, a friend. And while they resist the gospel, they are at the same time, they live outwardly moral lives. They exhibit kindness. They engage in acts of philanthropy. They give to charity. They are somebody who is like the model of an ideal citizen. And we just can't imagine this good person coming under the wrath of God. But remember, the Bible has declared concerning all of us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we make a mistake when we compare each other with each other. When we compare one another with each other and say, well, I'm better than they are, so therefore I could never be eternally lost. But God doesn't measure us the way we measure each other. The Bible says if you break one commandment, you have broken them all. We all need a Savior. We all need to be rescued. We all need to be forgiven. Every last one of us. I got a question for you. If there is no hell, as some say, why did Jesus come and what did he come to save us from? Why the 911? Why the rescue mission? Why the severity of God's only son having to die on the cross, beaten beyond recognition, nailed to a tree? Why so severe? Why that? If there was really nothing that we needed to be saved from, as a matter of fact, what does saved mean? Saved from what? A bad day? A bad mood? He came to save us. Rescue us. And if there is no hell, why evangelize? Why spend all the money, time, and effort? to get the gospel out there if it doesn't really matter, if everybody's saved or if there is no hell. What are they going to be rescued from? General William Booth of the Salvation Army, he called his witnesses soldiers. The people he was sent out to witness the gospel, he called them soldiers. He said one day he wrote, he wished every one of his soldiers could spend five minutes in hell for then they would come back with a greater burden for those around them than they ever knew. If they could just see what hell is like for five minutes.
they come out and tell everybody as fast as they could. But here's another point that really means more to me than the rest. Most importantly, if there's no hell, then that means Jesus was a false teacher. And are you really ready and willing to say that? That Jesus was a false teacher or else he was sadly mistaken and deluded. That there is no such place. Are you really willing to put your opinion above the words of Christ written in every gospel? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Interestingly, a survey commissioned by U.S. News and World Report for a cover story entitled, Hell Hath No Fury, their poll revealed this. 64% of Americans believe there is a hell. 64%. And surprisingly, the poll indicated that more Americans believe in hell today than they did in the 1950s or even 10 years ago. And I would have thought that would be the opposite. But the closer we get to the coming of Christ, it seems like more and more people are coming to the realization that there is a place called hell, that there is a hell to avoid, that there is a hell to miss and a heaven to gain. It's amazing to me what people know instinctively. And you know that Jesus said in Matthew 25, 46, that hell is forever. Jesus said that every person will be divided at the judgment into two categories, sheep and goats, and both have eternal fates. Jesus said, quote, these, the goats, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. Those two words, everlasting and eternal, everlasting punishment, eternal life, they come from the same Greek word, it's called ionios, Jesus said, those who are lost will go into Ionios punishment. Ionios meaning age after age, millennia after millennia, ages without end. And it's the same with eternal life. And if you say there is no eternal hell, what does that do with eternal life? If we're not going to spend eternity in hell, then we won't spend eternity in heaven either. And I know that that's true. We will be there forever and forever. Jesus used the same word to describe heaven and hell. According to Jesus, hell and heaven are forever. Since scripture clearly says there is a hell, the question is, what is it like? So Pastor Jeff, I don't really want to know. Well, guess what? Jesus told us what it's like. Why would he want us to know? Well, so that we would avoid that place. Also, so we would warn others of that place. You've got an answer. The answer is Christ. He wants you to tell people about it. And this is how serious it is. We're talking about a rescue mission that is eternal in its consequences. First, Jesus told us in the story that we read at the beginning that hell is a place of misery. The rich man is said to be in torment. He begged for even the smallest amount of water to relieve his suffering. He confesses in verse 24, I am tormented in this flame. In verse 25, Abraham, looking down at him in hell, uses the word torment to describe his condition. In verses 27 and 28, the rich man begs to be allowed to warn his family about this place so that they, quote, will not come to this place of torment. And this is not the only place where the Bible uses such graphic language to describe hell. In Matthew 25, 30, Jesus describes hell as a place of outer darkness where there is going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said that. 
The Jesus of John 3.16. The Jesus who walked on the water, who multiplied the bread, who raised the dead, who healed the sick, who opened blind eyes and deaf ears. That Jesus said there's going to be a place of eternal separation from God. And in that place, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Liberal scholars have been telling us for decades that what the Bible says about hell is only symbolic. That's ah, just symbolism. Jesus didn't really mean that. He's speaking metaphorically to make a point. But William Evans, in his classic book, The Great Doctrines of the Bible, says this, quote, Is the fire spoken of literal fire? He goes on to write, It's an accepted law of language that a figure of speech is less intense than the reality. If fire is merely a figurative expression, it must stand for some great reality. And if the reality is more intense than the figure, what an awful thing the punishment symbolized by fire must be. See, I think one of our problems is we don't grasp the, the seriousness of sin and God and His holiness. Yes, He's a God of love, but He's a God of holiness. He must deal with sin. And he either deals with your sin and my sin on the cross, or we must answer for our sin at the judgment. In verse 24, the rich man begged for even the smallest amount of water to relieve his suffering. And one writer points out, the most sobering thought that could ever cross our minds is the fact that the rich man in hell has not yet received the one drop of water for which he so desperately longed. Hell is a place of misery. Jesus said, avoid it. Jesus said, it's real. Well, I don't really believe that. What if he was wrong? What if he was right? And you know what I found in the story? Hell is not only a place of misery, but get this, it's also a place of memory. Beyond the fact that hell is a place of conscious misery, we find Abraham asking the man in hell, a two-word question, two question that rattles you when you think about it. He said, son, remember? Those two words reveal one of the most horrifying aspects of hell, and that is memory. Erwin Lutzer, in his book entitled, One Minute After You Die, says that hell is a region of unending regret. He goes on to write in hell with all their memories and feeling fully intact. Images of their life on earth will return to haunt them. They will think back to their friends, family, and relatives. They will brood over opportunities they squandered. I know right now there may be at least one or two people in here who are not saved, who do not know Christ. You're, you're, you have no plans to do so. You may very well one day be at the judgment and God will bring this service back to you. God will say, here and here and here, you heard the gospel and you rejected my son who was lifted up that if you had called on him and looked to him in faith, you would have been healed and delivered and forgiven. In Jesus' sobering message, the mind of the rich man is filled with images of poor Lazarus lying by his door with stray dogs licking his wounds, and the rich man did nothing to help him, nothing to reach out in any kind of love. 
He remembers those who try to tell him about God. He recalls sermons he heard. He remembers those who warned him about the coming judgment. Jesus shows him having a memory. And he also realizes that his destiny is set. Because Abraham explains to the rich man, there is a great chasm between heaven and hell. And and an uncrossable gulf. You can't cross over. Hell is not like a prison where you might be paroled, pardoned, or simply do your time and then get out. Hell is forever. Hell is inescapable. It is Ionios. It is age upon age upon age. There is no second chance. The great chasm described by Jesus is fixed and unalterable. Jesus' story makes it clear that once you end up in hell, it's too late to pray and it's too late to repent. You don't come back as someone or something else. Reincarnation is a lie. The Bible says it is given unto a man to die only one time, and after that, the judgment. Every man will face God. Every man will face Christ. Every woman, every young person above the age of accountability. And hell is not only a place of memory, but it's also a place of mourning. But guess what for? For those left behind. This man... He says, I beg you, Father. Now, he's in hell. He, he looks up and he says, I beg you, Father Abraham, that you would send Lazarus to my father's house. I've got five bros. I've got five brothers. And I want you to tell them. I want you to warn them. I want you to keep them from coming here. Do everything, anything. He's told they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if you go to them from the dead, if, if Lazarus goes and, and from the dead and tells them about eternity, about this place, then I know that they will turn. But then he's told, even if somebody rose from the dead, they won't do it. Jesus is predicting that even though he rose from the dead, many, many people would not repent. Now I want you to notice something. We don't see the rich man reveling in fellowship with his friends in hell. He is very much alone. Here's what he's not saying. Boy, I'm glad my brothers are going to be here soon. Then we can kick back and have a good old time and talk about the old days. No. His only desire is to keep them from where he is. And I can't tell you how many times in witnessing to people about the Lord through the years, I've been told, well, you know, I'm probably going to go to hell, but all my buddies will be down there with me and we'll just have a good time kicking back, talking about the good old days. And I say, you fool. You're a fool. I say that in love. I do. You're a fool. How stupid. Where did you get that? You didn't get that from Jesus. Hell is not going to be like it's so often characterized. A giant party where you sit around laughing and reminiscing with old friends about the good old days. That's not what it's going to be. You can't even see in outer darkness. This man is not concerned about meeting old friends or his brothers. He's concerned about keeping anybody and everybody from where he has ended up. He said, do anything. Keep them from here. I don't want them here. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Hell is a place of misery, it's a place of memory, it's a place of mourning. Now let me summarize what Jesus' teaching tells us about hell. First, it is not a myth. If anybody tells you it's a myth and he didn't really mean that, you heard the truth today. Right out of here. 
This is our measuring rod for truth and none other. This Bible tells us all we need to know about hell. So it's not a myth. Jesus taught the reality of hell more than anybody in the Bible. Second, in the afterlife, Jesus showed us that the dead are still alive. Both Lazarus and the rich man have survived their own funerals because we human beings are unlike anything God made. He did not give the animals, cats, dogs, squirrels, birds, fish, a soul. But it says when he made Adam, he breathed into him the breath of life. And it says he became a living soul. And that soul lives forever. It it way outlives your body. It's that part of you that goes on, that slips into eternity. That if you're a Christian, it goes into the presence of the Lord the minute your body dies. But Jesus showed us the minute this rich man died, he found himself in torments immediately. They survived their own funerals. Third, the dead retain their personalities and their essential character. Do you notice that Lazarus is still Lazarus and the rich man is still the rich man? I really believe in heaven. We will retain our essential personality without faults, without flaws, pure, perfect, with no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more disease, no more extra strength, etc. No more cancer, no more heart disease. But that's in heaven. We're not talking about heaven today. And then I see in closing, the five senses are still intact. Even in hell, the rich man could see, he could hear, he could feel, he could recognize, he could remember, he could speak, he could reflect, he could plead, suffer, and think ahead. Whichever place we wind up, It's forever. Once in heaven, it's forever. Once in hell, it's forever. That's according to Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. I can't explain it to you. I can't wrap my mind around either one of them. But I accept by faith what he said. Here's the good news. He lifted up himself on that cross. On that cross, he took your sin and mine. He took your sickness and mine. He took your judgment and mine. He took your hell and mine. And Jesus took it all so that we could have his righteousness. And when we look to him in faith and say, I believe with all of my heart that you died for my sin and you rose again from the dead, then God says, forgiven, I remove your sin as far from you as the east is from the west. You are now, you were going to hell, you're going to heaven, you were dead, now you're alive, you were lost, now you're found. That's good news. I want to close with the words from C.S. Lewis. He said, any man may choose eternal death. Those who choose it will have it. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. Or those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Can you stand with me today? I know this was a somber word. Do you know that if you had lived 100 years ago, you would have heard messages like this all the time. But now, we're living in Christianity light. But we need to hear this. 
I don't know about you, but I want all that God has for me, starting with salvation. I'm going to ask you to bow for a moment in prayer, would you? Some of you used to walk with the Lord, but you have drifted day by day, hour by hour, decision by decision, almost imperceptibly, you have drifted and you're not where you used to be with him. You're not here today by mistake. God wants to forgive you and draw you near. If there was ever a day we need to be walking closely with him, I tell you it's now. Come home to him. And if by chance you're here today and there's a question mark flitting around in the back of your mind about whether or not you've ever given your heart to Christ, I would encourage you, don't go get in your car. Don't drive down that highway. I wouldn't give it five minutes if I had that question mark. He wants to forgive you today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. With our heads bowed, I'm calling to you. God has put it on my heart to call you to him today. You can say, Pastor Jeff, I'm in one of those two categories and God's already been dealing with me. And this is only a confirmation of what he's been nudging my heart about. Would you let me pray with you today? I'm going to ask you to slip up your hand right where you are and say, I've drifted, but I'm ready to come home. Or I don't know that I've ever known him and I sure want to know for sure. Put him high. Let me see you.